Well, we are on lesson six in our series uh, currently on um, Christology, the doctrine of Christ. And you remember last week we began looking at Jesus' role as high priest, um, or at least as uh, priest generally, but specifically high priest, but not high priest um, as the Jews would have understood that term, right? Uh, when they're thinking high priest, what are they thinking of? One of the Levites who is uh, performing all the duties that were in the law that the high priest would, would um, uh, do but let's, let's remind ourselves, what is the role of a priest more generally? Interceding, not just in prayer, but even in his actions, right? Interceding on behalf of the people, between the people and God. So kind of an intermediary, right? Um, and in fact, those, those Old Testament priests under the law were kind of a picture of that role, of the need for someone to be an intermediary, a, a, a go-between. And of course, Moses um, pictured that role, and then uh, Aaron alongside of him actually was the first high priest to carry out some of those duties, uh, picturing that the need for man, a sinful man, to have an intermediary between us and the Holy God, right? Um, and so we're going to continue looking at this role of high priest. Um, something we haven't, I don't think we've talked about yet, though, is Scripture says that Jesus was a high priest uh, in the order of Melchizedek. So... Who, what do we know about Melchizedek? He was a king and a high priest in the Old Testament. Where do we see him in the Old Testament? Right. So Abraham uh, went with some others to rescue Lot from those who had uh, uh, plundered uh, these various uh, cities. Uh, Lot went up to rescue them, and when he came back, he stopped by um, Salem, which is now called what? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Um, and there was a priest there by the name of Melchizedek. He's called priest of the Most High God. And he blessed Abraham. Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoils as an um, honor to God for protecting him and so on. Um, but can someone look up Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be 
yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that starts out, the Lord said to my Lord, who's writing the psalm? David. David. And who's he referring to? The Lord being God. God said to my Lord, Jesus, the Messiah, right? Um, and, of course, Jesus made reference to that um, kind of stumping the, the Pharisees. Who, who was David talking about when he says, the Lord said to my Lord? He's referring to the Messiah as his Lord, right? So later in that passage, as it's, as it's describing the, the, the character and the ministry of the Messiah, it says um, that he is made a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. In what way would Christ, would the Messiah, be a priest in the order of Melchizedek? Any thoughts there? I mean, for one thing, uh, Genesis doesn't record any origin for Melchizedek. It says nothing about how he died. He just appears and just kind of keeps going like that. Jesus shows up in the incarnation. Obviously, he was born, and we do have a record of his crucifixion, but then he's resurrected, and he's still in heaven, still serving as high priest. Okay. Uh, What's the the key difference between the order of Melchizedek and the later priesthood uh, under the law? Yeah, the priests were from the tribe of Levi. What tribe was the Messiah from? Judah. Judah. So there's a different um, priesthood here. Uh, So turn to, um, if you're taking notes, you can also maybe reference Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. But let's start with Hebrews 6. And read all the way through the end of 6 and chapter 7, verse 28. So does someone have Ephesians, uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews 6, 19 through 20? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's quoting Psalm 110, right? And making clear that it's understood that this is applied to the Messiah, Christ. And then um, I'll go ahead and read chapter 7, because I want to kind of interrupt here in a few places. Uh, So it says, beginning in verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, and this is all referred, referenced about him in Genesis, in the account, uh, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned the tenth part of all, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Then verse 3 without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, 
but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest continually. So what's that mean? Without father, without mother? This guy just, was he a spirit? No. He was a real live person. He had a mother and father. What's the writer getting at here? His priesthood was not hereditary. It wasn't because he had a certain father, and that made him, that put him on the map, if you will, like is the case with what? The Levitical priesthood. And he's going to make that point as we continue reading. Verse 4. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office have a commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, that is, from the Levites, had collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. He blessed Abraham. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case... Mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And, so to speak, through Abraham, it is witness that he lives on. And, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes, um, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has... A, um, officiated at the altar. <clears throat> For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not according to the law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed about him you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For, on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed, they indeed became priests without an oath, how they become priests? They were born into that line of, of uh, priesthood. Uh, they indeed became priests without an oath, but he, with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, I will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much more, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented um, by death from continuing. In other words, it was a hereditary succession. Um, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. 
Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession, intercession for them. For it was fitting for us, um, yeah, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, as was the case with them, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Uh, may as well read 28 as well. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So the Messiah, Jesus, um, had a priesthood directly from God, the Father. It wasn't hereditary. And in that sense, he was like Melchizedek, who is what you could call a type, a, a, an example in advance of um, the priesthood of Christ. That doesn't mean that Melchizedek didn't have any parents. It doesn't mean that he just popped in out of nowhere. It means that he didn't get his priesthood by th anyone other than by God directly. And in that sense, he pre-pictured the ministry of Christ. Okay, I hope that helps. So, that's kind of a segue into um, the topics we're going to look at today. We're still continuing in Jesus' role as high priest. But probably the primary aspect of his priesthood was he was not only the one who made sacrifices, but instead he was the one who became our sacrifice. So his role as, as um, high priest has much to do with what we understand about salvation, how God accomplished salvation. And so uh, point number five, as we begin here in lesson six, says Jesus' death was propitiatory because it fully satisfied the righteous anger of God against our sin. So what does propitiation mean? To propitiate, we don't use that word all that often apart from theology, right? <laughs> to propitiate means uh, theologically in terms of how it's applied to Christ, and I don't know if there's any other use of the term, but it means to satisfy the wrath of God, to satisfy. So God ha has wrath against what? Sin. Our sin. And Jesus' death as our intermediary completely satisfied that wrath. And on the cross he said, it is finished. And because he completely satisfied that wrath, as we read in, in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Right? It's because that wrath of God against our sin, which is a righteous wrath, a, a correct, it was right for him to have wrath against sin. Um, but Christ satisfied that. 
on the cross. He propitiated that. He became our propitiation. So let's look at some of these verses here. Let's look at the second passage there. It's from Hebrews 9, the chapter just prior to what we were reading. Could someone read that one, verses 11 through 15? But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, in order that since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Right. So makes reference to him as high priest. His sacrifice was once for all, in contrast with the repeated sacrifices, right, of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it says, for this reason, he is a mediator of a new covenant. Mediator. Again, <clears throat> standing between us and God, being a... a um, intermediary and then first John 2 2 and he himself is the propitiation for our sins there's nothing else that can propitiate for our sins um, and no one else and we're going to talk about that in a little bit but he is the propitiation for our sins and then could someone read the memory verse there first John 410 and this is love not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Right, so God set that in motion uh, by sending Christ to live a perfect life, qualifying himself to be the propitiation, and then offering himself up as the propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. Does that make sense? Let's go to number six. Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior of man. Indeed, he is the Savior of the world. There is no other Savior given among men under heaven through whom man may receive salvation. So Jesus is not just one way, but he is the only way. And we see this, of course, a lot. Um, that first passage, Matthew 1, 21, this is uh, what Gabriel said to uh, Joseph as he was explaining the coming birth of the Messiah. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. What's significant about the name Jesus? Joshua. Sorry? It's Joshua. Okay, so what's, what's the significance of the name Joshua? Yeah, it, has, it carries the meaning of, of Savior. Yeah. Okay, 
So let's go down to the next to the last one there on this page, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So if this is if this were your first time reading these words, wouldn't that sound pretty arrogant? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's very restrictive. Um, if we didn't know anything else about Christ or about Scripture, we would think, what's he saying? I mean, that, that sounds pretty arrogant, right? It sounds arrogant if it weren't true. <coughs> but since it's true, it's essential that we understand it, Right? Why is it true? In what way is it true that there's no other way to the Father? Why couldn't there be another way? Well, we can't make sacrifice that is sufficient for our own sin. Okay. Try and try and try and try and try, and it still won't be sufficient. But Christ's perfect sinless life and the sacrifice of his life on our behalf does satisfy the wrath of God because he lived a perfect life that we can't live. What was it about the sacrifice of Christ, let's say in contrast with the sacrifice of all the animals in the Old Testament system, what was it about the sacrifice of Christ or about Christ himself that enabled his sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath, whereas the sacrifice of animals and the sacrifice even of our own lives wouldn't? Because he suffered the whole wrath. He suffered the whole wrath. That's true. Yeah, so you remember in the Old Testament sacrificial system, one of the requirements was that the lamb or whatever had to be spotless, spotless without spot or blemish. Why? Picture of purity. Picture of sinlessness, purity, right? In order, I mean, the whole thing is a picture of what was needed to come, right? And part of that picture was the need for a sacrifice that was sinless. Now, are animals sinless? Do they sin? They're affected by a fallen world. They're affected indirectly by sin, sure. But it, it, they're not really capable, they're not moral creatures, right? They're not capable of sin. So are they able to satisfy God's wrath against our sin? What was needed for the sacrifice that would satisfy God's wrath. Sacrifice, a sacrifice of infinite value to match God's basically infinite wrath because it, it is a fundamental aspect of him. Well, justice. Okay. Human capable of sin? Not yes. It had to, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. What kind of blood? Human. It had to be a human, a sinless human. How many people have qualified for that? Just one, right? Uh, so he, he um, I, may, I think I mentioned earlier that he qualified to be that ultimate sacrifice by living a perfect life. He didn't just zoom in at the age of 33, pay for our sins, and zoom. He, he lived a perfect life. And his righteousness, his perfect life, is credited to our account by God's grace. And our sins are imputed to him by God's grace. Um, 
And there would be no other way that could happen. He had to be born as a human being without sin. Hence, what? The virgin birth, right? Um, and he had to not only be born without sin, unlike Adam, he had to live a perfect life without sin. And he did. So he was eligible then to pay for our sins, to become that substitute that would satisfy God's wrath. That's why he's the only way. We can't pay for our own. Well, we can. That's the alternative. We can pay for our own sins. What does that look like? Eternity is separated from God. That's what we deserve, right? What's the alternative? Someone else pays for our sins. What has to be true of that someone else if he's going to pay for our sins? Not have his own sins to pay for, right? Anybody else qualify for that other than Jesus? No. So Jesus rightly said, no one comes to the Father but through me. There just is no other way. It had to be. Yes, God the Son came to earth and was fully man took on human flesh. So it was real human blood that was shed for our sins to satisfy God's wrath against our sins. Let's go to the top of page 47. He, Jesus, is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Skip down to 1 Timothy 1.15, the fourth from the bottom of that section. Someone read that, 1 Timothy 1.15? It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Of course, Paul is writing there, and, and uh, in his humility saying that uh, he's the foremost of all sinners. Uh, skip down two more to 1 John 4, 14. Someone read that? And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Right. One of the Saviors, the Savior, singular, of the world. Okay, number... Section 7 here. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead bodily, meaning physically, literally, thus resulting in an empty tomb. Well, empty except for the grave clothes and, and so on, right? Uh, his resurrected body was not a spirit, but had flesh and bones. Yet it had capabilities that unglorified bodies do not possess. So let's look at this. Go down to the bottom one here, Luke 24, 4 through 7. This is um, uh, the account of the, uh, the aftermath, I guess, of the resurrection. Someone read that? Bob? And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? 
He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. Yes. Uh, as is often the case in those accounts in Scripture, uh, two angels were referred to as two men because they had the appearance of men, but they were dazzling apparel. It was not normal appearance for men. But let's go to then Luke 24, the second one on the next page. Luke 24, 36 through 43. Someone read that? And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do you doubt? Uh, why, do you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it for joy or marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. In a similar way, skip down to John 20, 26 through 29. It's a different resurrection appearance. Could someone read that one? And after eight days, again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. Right. So what's significant here about Jesus' interaction with his followers following his resurrection? He had a physical body. He had a physical body, and it would have been uh, logical for them to assume that he was just a spirit. It was just maybe a, not an actual... Um, body that was raised but his spirit somehow and so he acknowledged that and said you know uh, this is really me I'm not just a spirit here you know um, touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have right and then of course um, the first time he met with them as a group Thomas wasn't there and good old doubting Thomas said, unless I see the, the wounds in his side and can um, actually touch and see that he has risen physically, I won't believe. And um, of course, he got that opportunity a week later. He saw, and very quickly, now I believe, and he worshiped Christ. Um, and Jesus wasn't harsh with him, but anticipating people like us who would not have seen him in his resurrected form, but believe anyway, um, that's even, you know, when our faith is built on what God has said, rather than what we experience, it's actually a, 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 
a stronger faith. And so that's cool. Okay, so why all this emphasis on the bodily resurrection of Christ? What's the significance of him being raised bodily? Doesn't it show that he did satisfy the wrath of God, like God, um, I forget the word I'm trying to think of, but the, I don't think approved is the best word, but I'm going to use it anyway, approved of the sacrifice of Christ Mm -hmm. as what was needed. Mm -hmm. So the physical resurrection is the evidence that Jesus all his claims that he made were true. Yeah, it'd be kind of awkward to worship Christ as the Lord of life if his bones were in the the grave, right? Um, And so God demonstrated not just that he paid for our sins, but that he defeated what? Death. Death and Sin. sin. Death being the consequence of mm-hmm. sin. Um, and God in his, well, it had to happen, but it had the benefit that it, it confirmed for us and it confirmed for his disciples who were really doubting and afraid and um, not sure where to turn. Their mindset had been that he was here to usher in on earth uh, the Davidic kingdom and get things back rolling again and um, this was not in their thinking at all and so they were confused uh, but the resurrection was like a lightning bolt and um, not only the resurrection itself uh, but and the proof of it by his appearances to them over a period of 40 days, um, they were finally on board. But during that 40 days, um, but particularly at the end of Luke, yeah, well actually, uh, there is a reference on page 48, Luke 24, 46, it's part of a longer uh, account where it says Jesus opened their minds, he he went through the, the scriptures which at that point in time included what? Just the Old Testament. He went through the scriptures with them to show how all these things had to be and that he fulfilled them. And then he says, Luke 24, 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And this is where he says to them, um, go therefore and and uh, preach uh, the gospel of repentance in the name of Christ, and so on. Okay. Pastor? Yeah. I also feel like it's a, a foretaste of what we have to look forward to. We're going to be raised from death to life at the second coming. Yes, yes. Good segue. <laughs> <laughs> Why the resurrection? What's the significance of the resurrection? It has implications. So let's, on page 49, uh, go to the fourth one down there, Romans 8, 11. And Diane, maybe you can read that since this is sort of your point. Okay. 
But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who indwells you. So, um, let's build on that. Go down to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, well, three more down, the large one there, where this hugely important chapter uh, is where Paul writes, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if that were true. In fact, the dead, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Because he's raised, we see that he has defeated sin and death. And if, if um, he hasn't defeated sin and death, we're still in our sins. There's no hope. And he says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Because if it's not true, we're believing a lie. Right? And there's no hope for us anyway. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. When it says asleep here, what does it mean? Dead. Yeah. And then he picks up on this again in 1 Thessalonians 4, the very next one, verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring, him, bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So, um, he's referred to as the first fruits. The, um, uh, the, the, the leader, if you will, the one who has been raised first so that all who place their trust in him would also be raised um, bodily um, from the dead. So our salvation is not just the salvation of our soul, our spirit. God saves our whole being, which includes our body. Now it's going to uh, become what we call glorified, and, and, and 1 Corinthians 15 and other passages um, outline this, that even as Christ's body, although it was still physical, flesh and bones, it was glorified. And what do we mean by that? Shows all the glory and the bright light and everything? No, that's not what we're referring to. But it had a, 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 uh, a physical characteristic that was beyond the um, capability of mortal flesh. So, for example, it says, um, well, we read that in John 20. After eight days, his disciples were inside, and Thomas was with them, and Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and he stood in their midst. He was able to, just to, to 
um, uh, go through walls and doors, and there he is. Even though he's flesh and blood, you can feel him. And we can't really comprehend that because that's not anywhere in our experience, I guess, right? Nobody's experienced that. But, and it wasn't a completely new body. How do we know that? Still had the scars, right? So, but it was changed, and, and um, Paul dwells on that a fair amount in 1 Corinthians 15, the nature of that change, and says we'll, we're going to be like him. Uh, we'll be raised bodily, but that body is going to have characteristics and attributes that we've never experienced before. And it's, it's sort of the, the um, kind of like angels and other heavenly beings. They have a character and a, 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 an essence that's beyond what we're used to in our human bodies. But yeah, Diane. I was going to say the most significant part of that glorification will be our inability to sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we get to the uh, section on uh, salvation, I guess that's going to be next quarter, uh, we're going to see that there are actually three aspects of salvation. Being saved from the penalty of sin, which is what we're usually thinking of when we talk about salvation. Being saved from the penalty of sin is called what? Justification. Justification. But there's also an aspect of salvation where we're, we're being saved from the power of sin over us. And that's what? Sanctification. Sanctification. And that's a process. Justification happens like that. Sanctification, well, sanctification has two, two meanings, two separate manifestations. One is an eternal sanctification. God refers to us in the past tense as having been sanctified, separated from sin, we're seated with Christ. So positionally we're sanctified, but day to day in our experience, we're being sanctified so that our experience more and more matches our position. And so usually when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about that progressive change in us to become more and more like Christ. But the third aspect of salvation is glorification, glorification which is what? Being saved from the very presence of sin. Even so, may it come quickly, right? <laughs> uh, so being saved from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and finally, the very presence of sin. And um, God's going to prepare our bodies, our actual bodies, uh, which we will presumably recognize one another uh, because, but it might not be immediate because the disciples, I don't know if they didn't recognize him immediately because of the context, thinking that, oh, he's already died, who could this be? But as he interacted with them, they were realizing, this is the Lord. And I can touch them and feel it, and I see the scars, it's really the Lord. Um, so that's fascinating. But, Okay, so this actually takes us to, I think we covered the interpretation questions on page 50. 
But let's go ahead by way of review. What does propitiation mean? To appease. More, more than appease, but actually satisfy. Appease kind of carries the meaning of for now, temporary. Hold someone at bay kind of a thing. That's how we often use the word. But propitiation is complete satisfying the wrath of God. And so why is Jesus the only means of salvation? And actually did it. <laughs> yeah, he died on our behalf. Right, he was our substitute. Good. So the application here. Why is the physical bodily resurrection of Christ so necessary for our salvation? It shows that sin was de- um, defeated. Terry, did you have another? Um, basically the same thing. Like if you actually didn't rise from the dead, then there's no proof or evidence that um, he was victorious. Yeah, so um, I kind of use that same terminology. It's, it's not just that we needed the proof, although we did, but it was also necessary because what happens when you actually have victory over sin and death? Death can't hold you, right? Where, oh, death is your sting. So um, the two go hand in hand. Um, it was necessary for him to rise. Uh, there's nothing that could defeat him uh, in death. Um, but we also needed to see that what he said was happening actually did happen. He paid for our sins. Right? Any other um, reasons why his bodily resurrection was necessary for our salvation? to make intercession for us. Okay. He's not just someone we think of in the past. He's alive. He died. He's alive. And that has implications. Right? He's interceding for us. Um, He's our advocate before the Father. Um, And, yes, Yes, that's, that's definitely true. In fact, Jesus was pointing that out to his disciples in his resurrection appearances. He explained how the scriptures were fulfilled, not just in his teaching and his sacrifice, but even his resurrection. Yeah. So um, it had to be because God had already revealed that it would be, right? So God being true to his word, it was necessary. Um, but we also talked about one other implication or application of the resurrection of Christ. The Holy Spirit? That's true. That's not what I'm getting at. In terms of the bodily resurrection. Gives a hope for our own body. Yeah, it, 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 it pictures and also gives us hope and assurance that we too will rise from the dead. Right? Our, and not just our soul but even our bodies will be transformed into, this scripture says, we will be like him. Um, however that was, we'll be like him. So here's an application of that. Um, 
I don't know if it's a, a growing trend, but uh, it's clearly an, an option for people out there that when they die, they can make arrangements ahead of time or their family can make arrangements that they be cremated. That's not inherently evil, but what is the, the testimony when our body is cremated? What are we saying, basically? That bodies don't matter. That, yeah, the body doesn't matter, that that's basically the end. Um, when, what should we be saying in death? There is a resurrection even of the body. And so, um, I believe, and a lot of people believe, that the, the tradition of burying a body gives testimony that one day it will rise again. Now, is God able to raise a body that's been burned into a, a crisp in a fire? Absolutely. Is he able to resurrect a body that's died at sea and has been consumed by fish? Absolutely. But when we have opportunity to give testimony maybe to an unbelieving world that this is not the end, the body too will rise, that's, that's a good testimony. Um, so, food for thought. These things have implications and applications. Any questions about this aspect of Jesus' role? I've probably heard the answer to this before, but I don't remember. Why do present-day Jews not find it necessary to continue sacrifices absent belief in Christ? I, I, don't, I don't know why. Or at what point did that happen? When did they stop having sacrifices? The, the Jews, you mean? Yes. Uh, well, it kind of got hard when the temple got destroyed in 70 AD. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course... They made sacrifices before the temple was built, um, but they were also dispersed, which made it hard. Um, Theologically, they come up with reasons. I'm not all that well-versed on how they rationalize it, but in their view, the law, well, conservative Orthodox Jews believe that the law is still operational, and my understanding is they've got the plans already drawn for a replacement temple. As soon as they have opportunity, they're going to build it. And I'm sure they will offer sacrifices. In fact, Scripture says they will. Because what do we see in um, Daniel 9 and other passages about the tribulation period, that there will be sacrifices at the temple in the first part of that, that uh, tribulation period. Um, so, Orthodox Jews definitely are chomping at the bit to be able to do that. And I, I'm not sure exactly how they rationalize not doing it at the moment, but I um, hope that helps. Yeah. Um, if I'm not mistaken, there is a revival of Orthodox Judaism in Israel at the moment, and they are practicing sacrifices. They're just not doing it in a temple. They do have like a defined 
sacred place mm-hmm. so they're doing it to the best of what their ability is yeah and that would be but consistent I think, uh, a thing to consider too is like if you look at like first samuel when the ark was gone and the priesthood was destroyed and even when the ark came back the priesthood wasn't stood back up immediately and um, you know there was still like sacrifices going on a lot of idolatry too but just kind of like in the local community even in the period of the kings in the old testament uh, there was a long period there where even the passover itself was not um, celebrated and it was quite a thing when it was reintroduced that was it josiah i think i may be wrong on that um, but yeah, there have been lapses. So yeah, it's interesting. What's in it? Yeah. Um, based on what we've read today, just about Jesus being the mediator between us and God and His position, why is it that um, in Catholicism they require like intercession by a priest if they read most of the same Bible that we have? Which you know, editions and things like that, they still have scripture written the same way that we do. So what is their interpretation of that? Like, why is it so different? It's not just Catholics. I mean, um, um, Church of England, um, Episcopals, kind of the same thing. They have priests, they call them vicars, but it's the same thing. Uh, the vicar is someone who is an intermediary, vicarious. Um, actually, when you asked the question, we were beginning to ask the question, I was thinking if you're asking, what's Mary's role? They call her a mediator. Mediatrix, I guess is the fem- feminine verb. Right, because they pray to Mary. Yeah, as an intermediary. That's another, well, it's related, but another issue. But your, your actual question about um, the ongoing need for priests, I think the simplest answer is human nature. That um, transitioning from the early church and the apostle, apostolic age um, as... Um, church authority and power kind of got concentrated and they, they depart from uh, what's in scripture both in terms of their, their doctrine and their philosophy of ministry <clears throat> things developed <clears throat> things developed that were not laid out in scripture, uh, practices, uh, positions, popes. Um, by the time you get to the Middle Ages or even before, it became a handy thing for this religious class, this priesthood, to exercise power over the common people, and um, as soon as you get that, and it's not, it's not um, 
from Scripture. It's actually in opposition to Scripture. There's no accountability. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Again, that's human nature to try to, to gather power to themselves and authority and so on. Um, and so they, they create doctrine that's not in Scripture. They create doctrine that says you need us in order to be right with God. And so this whole idea of indulgences and, and so on. Um, so it all begins when you depart from Scripture. And when you depart from Scripture and you include human nature, sinful man, you get all sorts of perversions. And that's how it all starts. Um, yeah. I was just going to say, um, supplementary to that, one thing, to, or two things to remember about Catholicism is that if you talk to a Catholic, they say that they hold the Bible in the same regard, the same respect as tradition and the church in practice. Tradition and the church dictate what the Bible means, so they really don't hold scripture in the same, in the same respect. So if the church says this, even if the Bible says different, they're going to do what the church says, especially the Pope, which gets squirrely. But then there's also the fact that up until, I'm not sure when it started, and I think it went, I can't remember the name of the first, I can't remember the name of the German translator. I know that Tyndale was one of the first English translators, but for a very long time, it was in religious terms, literally illegal for the Bible to be in any kind of common language. So only the priests could read it because it was all in Latin or Greek, uh, mostly Latin, and even a lot of the priests couldn't read what the Bible actually said. They were just going, doing what they were told. So that also plays in. The, the irony of that is the Latin version of the Bible was the Vulgate. What that means is it was in the common language of the people at the time, the vulgar language. Not that it was vulgar in a, in a but it, it means it was common, common language. That was the whole point. And then it became not the common language of most people, and it became elevated to some lofty, uh, yeah. Um, I just want to say one thing, because you said um, in your question, if they just have the Bible with a little more books added, that's, that's not true. So... Um, the Catholics, um, they do have that, but by coming out of the Reformation, one of the five soles was sola scriptura, which is the foundation of it all. They don't believe that, which is why it was recaptured in the Reformation. And so if you look at true Catholic doctrine, they have manuscripts upon manuscripts upon manuscripts of decrees that popes have passed, and the pope's word supersedes scripture. So they have the Bible with a few more books, and some untold thousands of manuscripts in the vaults under the Vatican that also that supersede the Bible. So that's why, and, and if you know that too, and you talk to a Catholic, a common day Catholic today, like a non-Roman Catholic, they won't say, they don't know their religion. They'll say, well, I just read the same book as you with a few more books. But they don't know that the true follow their hierarchy all the way up and what they truly practice is whatever the Pope says. And so that that claim that they make is false. They just don't know the religion. Um, and of course it's evolved over time too because all these succession of Popes come up with new pronouncements and new doctrines and all sorts of things. And some things are a lot more new than you might think. I think the, um, 
physical assumption of Mary, I think that was only introduced in like the 1950s, but talk to any Catholic and they're gonna say that's the church has always believed that. Yeah, and you've heard of the um, Immaculate Conception. Who does that refer to? Mary. Mary. In order for her to be the mother of God, she had to be without sin. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. That's because they've departed from Scripture. Yeah. When I was uh, young, I had neighbors who were Catholic. And they always had to have fish on Fridays. That was tradition. When I asked them why, I got kind of a vague answer of it's showing, you know, our devotion to God and Christ. And it's a sacrifice not to eat meat on Fridays. But recently I read that it was actually a decree by a pope. Um, and he was trying to help the fishing industry. So he decreed that everyone should eat fish on Fridays. It had no spiritual meaning then, but it became a spiritual thing. I was, I was always told back when I was growing up that the reason was that Christ died on the Friday, and it was out yeah. of respect for, for him. Yeah. Oh, also, that that is the same reason that for a while rabbits were considered fish, so that they like if you couldn't have access to fish, you could still have something to eat on Friday. <laughs> so like, the church just said, "Oh yeah, rabbits count." The bottom line for me, of course, is um, what's key to not starting out in or perpetuating errors like that. What's key is maintaining sound doctrine based on Scripture, <clears throat> and what obedient application of that doctrine. So it's not just, this is what we believe on paper, but we do something else. Um, that doctrine has to drive our behavior, our thinking, our actions, our ministries. Uh, it's all grounded in scripture. But it's so easy to interject human thinking, human logic, human priorities, to kind of put a spin on what scripture says and then and then of course well we've always done it that way and it, it becomes a departure from sound doctrine and obedient application so we need to be vigilant all of us we can't just point the finger at others and say look at how they've messed up because we're prone to the very same thing well with that let's close in prayer